We will be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And if you have a Bible or your uh, electronic device, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God and the Word, and we can read the passage together. Peter says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the freedom to come here, to gather and to worship in your name. And we ask, Lord, that you this morning would fill us with your spirit, that you would open our ears, that we would have ears willing to hear and hearts willing to receive all that you want to share with us this morning, personally, individually. And Lord, we pray that our heart would be soft. Lord, that you'd remove the stony places, the weeds, those cares of the world, that you would take the time to ready us, Lord, because as we hear your word, we, we want to change. We want you to press us and shape us into your image. We want to know you more. And Lord, we want to have the strength, the courage, and the freedom to make you known to others. And so, Lord, we pray that you do that inner work in each one of us. And Lord, that you do so for your glory and for your great name. We pray this just with thanksgiving and an expectation for you to do a good work. Amen. Before you take a seat, please give uh, each other a warm Calvary welcome. Shake a hand, hug a neck, say hello. I uh, titled the message for this morning, uh, Simply Arm Yourselves. And I wanted to do that because I thought it was a, a good reminder of the call to action that Peter gives us. Excuse me. And, and that's really the text this morning. It, it is here to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, but it's also here to encourage us to respond in like manner. It elicits a change in our conduct and it informs us of how the world may respond if we live that change out. 
And from our text this morning, I want to draw, draw five practical takeaways um, that can be applied to our lives. And I like to frame these takeaways in the form of an imperative, something that we can do um, because I like action. And so uh, with each of these imperatives, these takeaways, I'll kind of highlight them and pause um, as we encounter them in the text. And if you like to take notes, you know, uh, I appreciate it when I can get the points right. So hopefully you'll be able to follow along easy. Peter, he begins our portion of scripture with the word therefore. And what do we do when we encounter that word? Yeah, what's it there for? Exactly right. It's a connecting word. It connects what is about to be said to what has already been said. It, um, it, it causes us to want to pause and to remember uh-huh, what has been said so that I can rightly understand what is about to be said. And so I want to do that. I want to uh, look back and remember a little bit of the key things that Chaplain Rob Johnson had tackled last week. And the passage that he looked at was 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22, and he did a good job. Uh, if you did, weren't here on Sunday, uh, if you skipped church or missed for whatever reason, you can listen online, and uh, I think you'll be blessed. So, But in verse 18 of chapter 3, Peter, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ has both suffered and he died for each one of us. Verse 19 tells us that he preached to the spirits in prison. And then in verse 22, we read that he has gone into heaven and that he is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. But Jesus has conquered death. He has risen from the grave. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And all of creation... Powers, authorities, you and me, we are subject to him. That's the glorious truth that Peter has given us. And Peter, after relaying these truths, he begins our portion of scripture by calling us to respond appropriately to that truth. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, we need to now do something in light of that truth. What are we to do? Peter tells us, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same mind. And that word arm in the Greek, it's hablitzo. It's a military term for all of you in the military that are here in this room. It means to equip, to provide, to furnish with weapons or weaponry. And Peter, he uses it metaphorically for us this morning so that we might adopt 
the same mind of Christ, that we might equip ourselves with a Jesus way of thinking, with a Jesus-like determination, just as Christ was willing to suffer for us, we need to have the same purpose, the same determination in our living for him. And I want to capture that idea with an imperative. I want to capture it this way. So if you're a note taker this morning, you can just write, simply be willing to suffer for Jesus. Be willing. And if that is the imperative, if that's the action, a willingness to suffer, then I, I want us just to consider that action as we kind of look inwardly and ask our, yourself a question. Am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to be put to shame? Am I willing to be looked on with scorn? To be labeled outcast or ostracized? Am I willing to die if need be for Christ? Just like he was willing to do so for me. Is he worth it? Let's just think about that one for a second. Is Christ worth suffering for? You know, the believers that Peter was specifically writing to, they, they were literally facing or going to face persecution that most of us, I think it would be safe to say, uh, have never suffered like. Most of us would have a hard time, I think, even imagining what it would be like to suffer as some of those believers did. But Peter's words still apply to each one of our lives individually today, to our unique circumstances and situations. Because suffering is suffering. And it's relative to each one of our experiences. We can still suffer even though our suffering doesn't look like the suffering of someone else. Regardless of what the suffering looks like individually, the question still remains for each one of us this morning. Is Jesus worth it? Are you willing to suffer for him? The other way I looked at it was this. What does my commitment to Christ look like? How far will my commitment take me? You know, I think the, re the writer of Hebrews, he framed the concept of this passage in a unique way. And I, and I want to share it with you. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. So if you want to turn there, you can. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews, he says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. For you have not yet resisted to bloodshed in striving against sin. That connects very cleanly to what Peter is trying to tell us. You know, and as we look to Jesus and adopt his ways, it it helps us to want to run free, to run without weight, without encumbrance of sin. Consider again what Peter says. If you go back to Peter there in chapter four, he says in uh, the rest of verse one, he says, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Now I want to be clear here too. Peter is not saying that you're going to be sinless if you suffer. He is telling us that we're no longer, that, well, let me say it this way, that even if you, if you suffer, you still will commit sin in the flesh, but the sufferer has effectively broken with a life dominated by the power of sin. That is what Peter is saying. Sin no longer will reign over you. You realize that you no longer want to carry the weights and you don't want to be ensnared by the trap of your sin. Wayne Grudem, he's a systematic theology, um, a guy who wrote a systematic theology that's pretty popular. He says it this way, whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on obeying God, in spite of the suffering it involved, has made a clear break with sin. I agree with that. I I believe that's what Peter is talking about here. A person who's willing to look to Jesus and suffer for Christ, man, you're just done living after the flesh. Suffering in Christ puts your priorities in line, into the right perspective. It changes your outlook on life. What's really important? What's really meaningful? What's fulfilling? What's really valuable? Truly worth our time pursuing, our efforts and our energy. Notice what Peter says here in verse two. He says, the rest of our time, right? And then in verse three, he says, we've spent enough of our past lifetime." He reminds us that we only have a limited time here on earth. The clock is ticking just like it is back there. And it never slows down. It never stops. It just keeps going. 
regardless of what we are doing. And so we want to choose now, if you haven't done so already, who are you going to live your life for? Yourself? Your own desires? Or for Jesus? Right? We don't want to waste any more precious time. Time is a commodity that we can never get back. And all of us at one point or another have been guilty of just completely wasting it. And Peter, he tells us in verse three, man, we need to stop doing that. But, but he also points out in verse two that we have time left. We're all still here. Man, praise the Lord. When we trust in him, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're, we're not just gone, right? But he has a purpose for us here and now, today. And so we want to live in that purpose. We want to use the time that God gives us, has gifted us with wisely. In light of what Christ has done for us, our proper response is to redeem the time, to crucify our passions, our desires, and to live our lives sold out for Christ. No turning back, full steam ahead. And so I want to capture that uh, in an imperative for us this morning. Point number two, no longer live your life for yourself, but live your life for Jesus. Simple, right? And we see this exhortation given similarly all over the New Testament. I want to just draw our attention to some of the things that Jesus has told us. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus tells us this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He adds in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And then in John chapter 12, verse 24, he gives this statement. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This is a metaphor Jesus is saying that your life and my life, it's like a seed. And unless we die for ourselves, to ourselves, excuse me, by following Jesus, we will be fruitless. Paul, he gives us a description from his own life of what this looks like. It's Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. And he says, describing his life as he follows Christ, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in the same letter that he wrote to the Galatians, in chapter 5, Verse 24, he would add this. He says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions 
and his desires. You see, Paul gave a description of what his life looked like, but then he says, this is what your life and my life needs to look like as well. That's what the life of all believers needs to look like. And that's why Paul, he would implore the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. He would say, I beseech you, I beg you, I'm pleading with you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this change that Peter writes about in our passage, it's a charge to equip ourselves with Christ's way of thinking, his determination, his willingness to let go of our desires, our fleshly lusts, the world's way of doing things, to be willing to suffer for Jesus. And that is in sync with what Paul teaches and with Christ's life and words. Paul would say, it's reasonable. This is the reasonable thing for us to do. Peter in verse two in 1 Peter chapter four, he said that we should live for the will of God. And Paul would tell us that if we're willing to do this, that then our life becomes the evidence that God's will is good. It's perfect and it's acceptable. And so we want to let our lives be that living example. In verse three, Peter also includes that list of what the world's way of living looks like. Peter, he uses... Um, a very, very descriptive terms, right? And, and he says, that's the way it looked when we walked in those things. Meaning that those things aren't to be associated with us in the way that we live now. That was in the past. That marked a past life, but it shouldn't mark the present and it shouldn't mark the future life for the believer. And so we want to frame it this way. Our third point don't allow your life to look like the world. Very simple, right? Just allow it to be different. And the words that Peter uses to describe them, it's lewdness, it's lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Those are the words that the New King James uses in the English. And there, if you have a different English Bible translation, you'll see a little bit different words um, that are used. But all of the English Bible translations, they convey the same idea, which is simply this. Don't allow a lack of self-control. Widespread sexual promiscuity, substance abuse, wild living, out-of-control partying, and misplaced worship 
mark your life. Those things and the association with those things is unacceptable behavior. You and I should not be known for doing those things or engaging in those things as a believer. If those things have been associated with your life in the past, leave it in the past. The past is dead, it's gone, leave it buried there. And consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this passage. Chapter 5 is a, is a great passage. I want to read verses 14 and 15, and then I want to read verse 17. And in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he, Jesus, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul then says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new creations in Christ. And Peter is asking us simply, live like it. Let's continue in verse four. Verse four, Peter says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. I don't know about you, but I've experienced that. I've been there. And when I was younger, I joined the army. I went through basic training. I went through airborne school. I moved from Fort Benning up to Fort Bragg. And I found myself in a place called SOPC, Special Operations Preparation and Conditioning Course 1. And I don't even know if they do that anymore, but they did back then. But when I was there waiting for these, this course to take place, the guys that I was with, they lived for the world. They lived for that list that Peter gave us in verse three. Every opportunity, man, the weekend, when the workday was done, you know, when they were, when we were released at five, they wanted to go right to the red light district or they wanted to get lost out of their minds at the bar. That, that's what they lived for. But the problem was you had to go with a, a battle buddy. So they were constantly saying, hey, come with me. Let's do this together. Why don't you come? And, and I didn't want to do those things. I didn't want to go to those places. But sometimes I did want to get off base and I didn't have a car. And so sometimes I had to ask, hey, do you want to go someplace with me? And I remember one Saturday, I wanted to go to lunch. I wanted to move away from a place where all I saw was green, you know, BDUs. And I got a guy to agree, yeah, I'll go to lunch with you. And then the whole car got piled in with people and we went. And the driver didn't take me where I wanted him to go. And as we pulled into the strip club, I was like, oh man, here we go. And I had to say, hey, I, I will not go in there. 
And that's a hard place to be when you've got a whole bunch of your peers right there. And they tried every kind of pressure, name calling, cursing, even physical pushing, shoving. But I had to stick to my guns. And I, and I turned to walk away. I'm like, you guys do what you want. I'm going to get something to eat. And in the end, they, they joined me. And I think we all went to Chili's. <laughs> but, but that it was the beginning of a long time of harassment and nagging and name calling and pressure that seemed at the time relentless just to try to get me to break. As Peter says, right? They think it's strange that you do not run with them, that you don't want to join in with them and the things that they want to do, and they will speak evil of you. My friends, they didn't get it. They didn't understand why I didn't just go along with their reckless and wild living. They mocked, and they will mock you, because when Christians take a stand, we convict those who practice sin when we don't participate in it. And that's a truth that I learned. And they will speak evil, not because they don't like you, not because they're not, they're, they're not your friend. It's because it's their way of lashing out against their own pricked conscience. But I also learned, eventually for me, that through patient endurance, through modeling love, showing grace, extending mercy, forgiving, and living with integrity, that my friends, they became to respect an honest life. Even if they didn't practice it, even if... They lived in their own hypocrisy. They were, were eventually, they became the ones who defended me and my decisions against those who didn't know me. And so with my own experience, and then I believe according to God's word too, the simple takeaway for us is this. And this is not a simple one. It's actually a long one. <laughs> um, point number four, in the face of opposition and evil speaking, be an example that points others to Jesus and allow that hardship to make you more like him. You know, the world, it won't understand you. But James, he has some good words for us to consider. He says, my brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The world will oppose Christ in you. And that's okay. Love them like Jesus. And endure them like Jesus was willing to endure you when you were still his enemy. Let's close out the passage Back to 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter, or chapter 4, verse 5, it says, 
And they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. They, um, here in verse five, I think it's the same they, the Gentiles that are mentioned in verse three. It's uh, the same that are mentioned in verse four that don't understand, that may speak evil of you. Um, And Peter says, they're going to give an account. They're going to be judged. What's the takeaway for us? Uh, Point number five, know that there is a judgment coming. And rest in that truth. You know, whatever persecution or suffering that we might face at the hands of sinful men, it's going to be rectified. Jesus is going to make it right. God will bring justice in his time and he will do so for his glory. And as we remember that fact, as we suffer, and experience trials, it gives us hope and it can help us to wait patiently and to endure. And knowing that the ultimate end of an unbeliever is judgment, that should also cause us to be motivated. It should spur us on because we love our neighbors. We love our coworkers, we love our family, we love our friends, we even love the stranger, and we don't want them to live a life separated from Jesus. And so it should cause us to share the truth of the gospel, the love of Christ, the love of our Savior who is willing to die for them, just like he was for us, that all men everywhere might be saved. And so we want to share that truth. Judgment is not just coming, though, for the unbeliever. It also is for us. Look at what Peter will say in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's with you and me. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God. It seems that the first purpose of our suffering really is just to purify the church, is to purify our lives, that we'll be able to be a better witness to the lost. But it also becomes a warning to the lost. If God judges his own children for their sins, how much more are those who reject him, right? So let's look at verse six again. It says, for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. And that connects us back again to chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where in chapter 3 it said, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits who were in prison, who were formerly disobedient, right? Right? Now, I don't, claim, I don't claim to understand all that Peter is talking about, but I do know this. 
I know that as we read, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. And I know that it's also preached to the spirits who are in prison. And I believe that that was according to God's wisdom and plan. It had to happen. And as Peter says, that they might be judged according to men in this flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. However that works out, I don't know. But according to Peter, it seems to have had to happen. And I believe at that time that Jesus was also, he fulfilled the promise that he would lead captivity captive. You see, Psalm 68, 18 mentions that the Messiah would do that. And Paul mentions the same thing in Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. I believe that what Peter is talking about here also was the fulfillment of when we read in Isaiah 61, one, the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Peter, I mean, excuse me, um, Luke relates to us in his gospel that Jesus read from that passage in Isaiah and said, today, I am here to fulfill that, right? Luke chapter four, verse 18. And so this preaching to those who are dead, it's not an offer of a second chance salvation, no, but I think it seems to me to somehow be the completion of salvation for those who had been faithful and obedient to God on their time in this life, those Old Testament saints. Because they believed and they looked forward to something, but they didn't know who their Messiah was. For example, I just want to um, explain it this way. In, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin and he is giving a testimony how a man was who was lame from his birth, was healed. And he says, in giving this testimony, he says in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other for... There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in explaining this notable miracle, Jesus tells us that salvation, it must be through Jesus. And Hebrews tells us concerning the Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. He says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then in chapter 11, verse 40, he goes on and says, God having provided something better for us, or excuse me, verse 39, and these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, the saints of old, they believed, yet they had not fully received the promises. And not in their life, not times. And then afterwards, it seems that they were waiting. 
in a place that Jesus would call paradise in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, or Abraham's bosom, according to Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And they waited there for the revealing of this promised Messiah, whom they had trusted without knowing. This promised Messiah, of course, is Jesus, who it seems to me, my opinion, had revealed himself to them at this time of preaching to the dead that Peter seems to describe in our text so that they could know him in whom they had trusted. At least that's my understanding currently. It could always change later, but let's wrap it up. Let's conclude our time in our text today. The, the uh, imperatives, the takeaways for us were number one, be willing to suffer for Jesus. Number two, no longer live for yourself, but live your life for Christ. Number three, don't allow your life to look like the world. Number four, in the face of opposition and evil speaking, be an example that points others to Jesus and allow that hardship to make you more like him. And finally, number five, knowing that there is a judgment coming, rest in that truth. Arm yourselves, right? This morning, our passage was a call to action. So we can let us purpose, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We don't want to be controlled by the past. We don't want to walk as we once did. It's time to walk in the change that Jesus has made in each one of our lives. The old you is dead, right? It's gone. You and I, we are a new creation. Let us no longer waste the time that God has given us here on earth, especially as we know that even we must give an account someday. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a call to action, really a call to follow you, to live like you. And Lord, we thank you that it's not on us to do that work, but it's by your grace and by the power that your spirit supplies and the enabling that your spirit has enabled us with. For he whom the son has set free is truly free indeed. So Lord, help us, each one of us, to walk in that freedom to live like you each and every day. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by our time together. Um, thanks for letting me share with you this morning. And we'll be in verses 7 through 11 next week. So I'd encourage you, if you're able, to read ahead. And then when we come together next week, it'll really just be for confirmation of what God has already spoken to your heart. Amen.